is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Election Day, finally, here. But don't count on waking up tomorrow with everything nice and resolved. Far from it. Results both here in Southern California and elsewhere could take a while to tally up. And then there are all the lawsuits. Dozens have been filed across the country related to the elections. We go in depth into what will happen next. We are also posing this question. Do we have too many elections? And if we do, would having fewer of them boost voter turnout and public interest in politics and government? The stock market might react well to a split with Republican-controlled Congress, so we're going to go into that, too. An instant billionaire is somewhere in Southern California. The record-setting $2 billion Powerball ticket was sold in Altadena. We'll go in-depth into whether Powerball and other lotteries really benefit states like they claim they do. Census data shows white people are living in more diverse neighborhoods than before. A new study shows how a new drug can help reduce the risk of long COVID. And is hosting the Oscars even worth it anymore? Jimmy Kimmel may find out that it's really not. So let's let's solve one mystery right now, Rob. Are you the winner of the Powerball lottery? At this point in time, I uh, will not release that information. <laughs> no, you're no. not. <laughs> and I'm not either, so there. <laughs> we start, though, with uh, Election Day and the lawsuits that threatened to slow everything down and possibly sow doubt into the legitimacy of the results. With us is Dan McMillan, who's founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. Dan, thanks for being with us. Uh, the number Thank of, you so of, much for having me. The number of lawsuits that have been filed, they have been kind of steadily increasing as each election cycle comes and goes, but I think we may be in unprecedented territory in terms of pre-voting or pre-election day litigation. Am I right about that? It does look that way. It does, definitely does. And, of course, in addition to the lawsuits, uh, since you've had so many candidates claiming that there was fraud in, in 2020, any of those candidates who lose will almost certainly claim that there was fraud this time around. So there's going to be a lot of, a lot of dispute, a lot of uncertainty as to who won the election. Is that the point of these lawsuits, just to sow doubt and sow confusion rather than to really accomplish turning an election around? Uh, that I rather doubt. Uh, the ones I don't know too much about them, but I, I, think the, I think the goal of the lawsuits is to win. That's, that's the goal. Um, in the case, for example, of John Fetterman's lawsuit, uh, he's trying to reverse um, or get change a Pennsylvania law that uh, says that any mail-in ballots that are not properly dated or undated have to be thrown out because they're not valid. Uh, and since mail-in voters are more likely Democrats, uh, if, if that law stands, then uh, Fetterman will likely lose thousands of votes. Uh, so that is a particular, that's an attempt on his part to head off a loss of votes, a possible way he could lose the election. No, I think the lawsuits are about winning. Well, uh, perhaps, but of course, the question then is if they're about winning the litigation, in the end, is it America that's losing? I mean, we've had courts since our founding. We've had elections yes. since our founding. Uh, why this now? Is this 
the legacy, the true legacy of the Trump presidency? Well, uh, I want to just second what you just said, that America is losing because we are losing badly. And this election is a disaster for the country, no matter who wins it. And because the mistrust of the American people toward our institutions has grown to such a high level that, you know, I mean, if, if the American people don't have faith that our elections are fair, that's the end of the republic. I mean, this this belief in itself, this doubt, qualifies as a constitutional crisis of the first order, even though no one's talking about it that way. Now, you ask, can we blame it all on Donald Trump? I don't think we can. I think that everyone has tried to blame everything they're unhappy about on Donald Trump, but Donald Trump, um, whether you love him or hate him, was a sign of the times. He was the natural result of a long evolution in our politics. And the problem goes way beyond one person. I'm not, since we're nonpartisan, I'm not saying he's the problem or not, but why, where does this come from, this, this distrust? I think it comes from the fact that, uh, particularly because the cost of election campaigns has skyrocketed in the last 10 years uh, for the federal elections doubled between 2016 and 2020 in constant dollars, we are now at the kind of the end stage of something that's been going on for decades, namely that we the people are no longer politicians' constituents. They're donors of their constituents. And long ago, they stopped listening to us and serving us. And since both major parties need to raise these sums to be competitive, neither party has been offering the American middle class or working class any help with our economic struggles, which have only gotten worse and worse. And I think it's really just the way that our our political representatives, our so-called representatives, have ceased to represent us. I think that's the main source of the mistrust. It's hard to prove that exactly, but I can see no other obvious explanation. All right. Thank you so much. Dan McMillan, founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. Right now, though, voter turnout is always discussed following any kind of election. Turnout, though, never hits anywhere near, you know, like 100 percent or even 90 percent. In some primaries and local elections, turnout can sometimes drop to below 30 percent. Well, is it because we simply have too many elections in this country. With us is Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the USC Saul Price School of Public Policy. Mindy, thanks for being with us. Uh, Other Western democracies, uh, Germany, France, UK, granted their parliamentary systems, but they don't have anywhere near the number of elections that Americans have to put up with year after year, federal elections, state elections, local elections. Why are we so election happy? Well, that's a great question. Um, So it's our unique version of democracy, right? Really informed by the progressive error, wanting to make sure that as many people as possible were participating uh, in the election process, but really in the selection process of policymakers and holding them accountable. Um, you know, being fearful that certainly coming out of the time that, uh, and the history of the United States that the, you know, the, the less frequent that voters were kind of engaged, then that was the time right for additional corruption and misdeeds. Um, maybe I'll, I'll stop there if you have another, but I, or I could go on and just say that, um, you know, I don't think that the, the idea of having fewer elections is necessarily off. I mean, we do have some research that shows consolidation of elections can be a good thing. Um, a lot of that, though, is about 
making sure that voters um, know there is an election, having some regularity, having, um, you know, when we have these, you know, kind of off cycle elections, oftentimes voters won't even know that there is a something on the ballot or that there is an election period. And we have really, really low turnout. And consequently, we have really low representation. We have really kind of select group of people that are in those really low turnout, kind of hard to know about elections. And and consolidation can mean that you have higher turnout, more people participating, more representation. Um, But that's still a very different kind of scenario than um, something maybe like along the lines of what many European countries have. But I think also the idea of changing the frequency of elections or the number of elections really uh, is assuming, right, that that is. I think we I think, I, I we, think we lost. Her. I think we lost her. So as our producer tries to get her back on online, uh, we're, we're talking about the whole issue of uh, how many elections this country has, because we don't have, by and large, very large turnouts, especially in off year elections. This happens to be a, an off year. By that, I mean, it's not a presidential election. So we're dealing with in the minds of many lesser uh, uh, positions to fill, although they're not lesser by any means. But other countries, and we discussed that already with Mindy Romero, uh, other countries uh, don't have that issue because they don't vote as much. I think, Mindy, are you back with us? I am. You I are. Wait, with wait, the rain. wait. Yeah, we we lost you for a second. Let, let, let me let me ask you that. You know, I I really like uh, M and M's, the the plain chocolate kind, and <laughs> uh, but I only eat them on special occasions. Like if I go to a movie, for example, I'll eat the M and M's, and I really kind of look forward. It's part of the package. I go to the movie, I have the M and M's, but I don't eat them all the time, and so I really cherish them when I do. The point, of course, that I'm getting at is if we had fewer elections, wouldn't they be more special? Wouldn't they make people look forward to them more as something unique in their lives that they want to participate in? And would that not perhaps drive up the uh, percentage of people who go to vote as opposed to doing it so often that it's kind of like if I had M&Ms every day? You know, it's. I like giving them too, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not convinced of that. So, you know, most people are not actually voting that often in the United States to begin with. Um, we have really low turnout, some of the lowest turnout of any established democracy around the world, or around most established democracies. And in any given election, you know, we have some people that turn out just for the presidential general election, right? And we don't see them in other elections. And there's real reasons for this, real barriers to participation. And I think the whole conversation around, you know, this connection between the frequency of elections uh, and turnout, you know, and I don't know if you heard me earlier, but I was saying that I think that, you know, leaves out the so many other factors for why the United States has low turnout that we have to be thinking about. And just, you know, if we change the frequency of elections or the numbers of elections, we really don't have any data to suggest that that's going to, you know, might impact turnout a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it might make you want those special M and M's a little bit more. Um, but all, of, but all of a sudden, are you going to be? You know, are we going to see turnout that mirrors most of the rest of the world? Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the differences in our electoral system that generates lower turnout. That's real, and we need to, you know, really be thinking about how can we change some of the structures that we have now on a much more larger scale well, if we really I, want to talk about. 
I wanted to yeah, ask you oh, very quickly, because uh, we're running out of time here, sure. but uh, you talk about uh, ways to build up turnout. I, you, my sense is that people get turned off by how long election season is. We're constantly in campaign season. Campaign season seems to be ongoing at all times. And I think that my opinion is that's what's turning so many voters off is and also we don't get things done in government because as soon as you get elected you are involved in the next campaign that you're going to be in already so you can't really do the things that need to be done you can only do the things that will help you in a campaign i think that's an excellent point i you know i i think we have generally they'll have an accountability problem when it comes to our election officials so they're they're always seeking that money, right, the, those campaign donations. They are only somewhat listening to the people that vote for them, and they are also pursuing big donors and other influencers on their time and their attention and what they actually pursue in terms of policy. Um, but again, I think, you know, most people are not hearing all of that campaign information. And um, the negative ads maybe definitely turn some people off, but they also still work. We have research that shows us that. And I think that the larger picture is, you know, we've got these winner-take-all single-member districts. So if you look across the country right now, today, most of the races, certainly at the Senate and the congressional district level, are safe seats, right, incumbent advantage. Um, you know, that structure generates uh, a lot of uh, disincentive for people to participate because they struggle to see why their vote actually matters. All right. Thank, uh, Mindy, thank you so much. We're, we're running a little short on time. Get sure. A lot of excellent insight. Thank you for joining us. And now uh, I want M&M. Yes, I do, too, but not uh, I only the green ones. Only the green ones. So I'll only vote in green elections. Oh, that's very psychologically interesting. Thank you. Mindy Romero, founder <laughs> director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the USC Sol Price School of Public Policy. And coming up, new census numbers show neighborhoods are a lot more diverse now across the U.S. And we look at whether hosting the Oscars can actually hurt a celebrity's career. Right now, though, the election results could have a big impact on the stock market. The Dow finished up today, maybe in anticipation of a split Congress, perhaps a Republican Congress and a, a Democratic White House. With us now is David Hay, longtime portfolio manager and author of Haymaker, a free weekly financial newsletter. Uh, thank you for joining us today. So is that what business uh, is 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 hoping for, a split government in which nothing would get done? Well, that might be a little extreme, guys, and thanks for having me on your show. Uh, I think the market in general does kind of pre prefer a stalemate so that you don't have really nasty legislation that comes out of Congress. But there's also some really serious issues out there that need addressing. And if you have a gridlock, uh, it's not going to get accomplished. So I think you said a, a key word earlier was anticipation. I think the market has been anticipating that we're going to see a red wave. And I suspect that the it sounds like you got a lot of flooding going on in uh, L.A. there today. I'm over in Indian Wells, and I suspect that we're going to see uh, a pretty serious deluge, too, uh, with the uh, Democrats coming on the wrong side of that, which maybe a lot of your listeners don't want to hear. But I think that's just the way things are trending right now. Does the market prefer that? Because that raises an interesting question. Does the market prefer Republicans over Democrats? Well, maybe I think so. But, you know, the reality is when it comes to political parties, I'm an equal opportunity deplorer. And I think for good reason. I think both parties have miserably failed this country over the last 20 years. And frankly, the Republicans have been more fiscally incontinent than the Democrats have, although the last two years it's been 
you know, open up the floodgates, you know, get back to the flood analogy. It's uh, the, the fiscal and monetary stimulus we saw since COVID was unprecedented. And many of us warned it was going to lead to a lot of inflation. And here we are. Yeah, part of the problem, I think, is by some metrics, if you look at democratic administrations and uh, democratically led governments, sometimes split governments, uh, the economy generally did better than they did under Republican administrations. But what businesses got from Republican administrations was lower taxes, tax cuts on the wealthy, etc. So uh, my question is, uh, from somebody from outside looks at that and says, well, obviously, uh, businesses want those tax cuts. They don't really care about the economy. But Businesses don't do well if the economy's not good. Precisely. That's exactly right. I, I think what's encouraging, I mean, to really the, your, your lead question is if you look, and you may know this already, I apologize if you do, but I bet a lot of your listeners don't, there's been 19 midterm elections since World War II. The market's been up 19 out of those 19 instances for the next year. So pretty amazing factoid. This time could be different. I will, you know, will allow for a variety of reasons, which if we have time, we could talk about. Well, I'm still visualizing your 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 description of the Republicans being fiscally in, uh, incontinent. That that image is stuck in <laughs> that my is mind. A picture. <laughs> it's very that. yeah, it's very it's very very graphic. Uh, but go into uh, in, in brief because we are going to run out of time. Otherwise, the point you were about to make or wanted to make. Go ahead. Well, I just think there's some we're seeing a series of headwinds for the economy and the financial markets that we typically don't see. For example, Jay Powell is clearly on the warpath. He's tightening to a degree that really hasn't been seen since Paul Volcker, who's his new hero. So, yes, the market's down. Yes, it looks like we're going to go into recession almost for sure, an earnings recession. And yet he's tightening like crazy and talking as tough as Dirty Harry Callahan, uh, you know, back in the Clint Eastwood movie of uh, <laughs> the same name. So. Uh, dirty Harry. And then we've got also, I think what's what a lot of Americans aren't aware of is there was a bigger housing bubble overseas than in America. We all know the housing got crazy, particularly after COVID, but it's worse in countries like Australia and Canada, and it's popping. So I think you've got a global uh, housing bear market unfolding. And then you've got uh, very, um, very high profit. If you high profit margins right now are extremely elevated, way beyond normal. So if you look at the P.E. based on normalized profit margins, I know it's a little bit of a sophisticated concept, but it's very important. It's about 30 times. Very, very expensive market. And you've also got the Treasury market, U.S. Treasury market, just getting pounded. It's been the worst market for Treasury since 1788. I'm pretty old, but I wasn't even around back then. <laughs> All right, uh, David, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Longtime uh, portfolio manager and author of Haymaker, a free weekly financial newsletter. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Somebody in Southern California is now an instant billionaire. That person might be listening to us now and is now thinking of the countless ways to spend all that money. I suggest donating it to your favorite news anchors. The record-setting <laughs> no, two no, bi- no, don't do <laughs> the record-setting two billion dollar Powerwall jackpot was hit this morning. The winning ticket sold at Joe's Service Center on Woodbury Road in Altadena. No doubt, uh, the uh, person who won uh, is going to uh, hopefully enjoy life. Why? Why wouldn't they? Powerball and other lotteries are set up to make states money. By the way, officials today in Altadena were talking about how schools here in California are going to benefit. But do they? What do states do with the lottery money? And does that money make a difference? 
Richard Oksher is a senior policy associate at the Tax Policy Center. Richard, thanks for being with us. I, I guess people don't give a lot of thought when they're in line waiting to, to get, whether it's the Powerball ticket or some other state lottery ticket, where that money that they're giving goes to and how it's being used. They're just thinking about, am I going to win? Does that money actually do the stuff that people are promised it's supposed to do? Do we know? Yes, the money does the stuff that it's promised to do. Uh, when you buy a lottery ticket, depending on the state, roughly 20 to 30% is going to go to the government. Uh, 60% goes to the prizes, roughly, and then the remainder goes to like admin expenses. Um, and it generates real revenue, like roughly $20 billion a year for states come from lotteries, probably around $1.5 billion to California. Uh, and as you mentioned, in California, it all goes to education. The thing to keep in mind, though, while that's a lot of money, that's billions of dollars, state budgets are far, far bigger. Um, So state lotteries provide roughly only about 1% of state revenue. So it's both a lot of money, but nowhere near enough to totally fund education, totally fund roads, totally fund the things states do. I know that some of the concerns that people have with state lotteries and, and interstate lotteries is that, yes, the money is earmarked to go towards education or whatever they sold you the lottery system on, but that eventually it doesn't. Eventually, you know, politicians, as people like to complain about, are going to dip their greedy hands into that pot of money that comes in. Uh, what are the guardrails in place, say, for example, in California, to keep that from happening? So it completely depends on the state. So in California, the guardrails are that it is mandated that those funds go toward funding education programs. In other states, it just might go to the general fund, and then the politicians get to divide it up the way they want to. It without I would say it always goes to the things the politicians are saying it goes to. The problem is that politicians oversell what this money can do. So they'll say something like, our lottery funds education. Um, for example, like in uh, Ohio, they used to have a saying that like their, their motto was take a chance on education. Odds are you'll have fun. Um, but even if every dollar from the lottery goes to education, they still have to get money from numerous other sources. And this is what justifiably irks voters is they're told, oh, it all goes to education. And then, of course, it's not nearly enough. So when they come back to ask for a tax hike, They feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. But what happened is the politician just didn't explain what they were actually doing. So why is it so hard to explain? I mean, it it uh, it would seem as if it would be a no brainer. And when things are difficult or seemingly difficult to explain, it does make people sometimes conclude that it was deliberate to be confusing so that people can't figure out where the money's going. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier for me to be nerdy sitting in a think tank in Washington, D.C. than it is for someone trying to get votes. People trying to get votes try to make it simple. Um, They make big promises. They don't break down the nuances of things, because if you broke down the nuances of things, you would have to tell voters, sure, we're going to get this, but also we're going to tax, you know, income taxes, sales taxes, property taxes and all the stuff that goes into government funding. So very simply clarifying, what you're saying is basically, uh, while the money does uh, usually go where it's supposed to be going, what we're told it's going to go to, uh, politicians have oversold the promise of lottery, like, hey, if you approve that we have this lottery, education is going to be funded forever, yay, and then it's not really that much money. That's that's your point, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you can just think of advertisements for lotteries and casinos showing everyone wins, Well, not everyone wins, just like it goes to the fund, but it doesn't actually solely fund education. It's a small amount. Yes. And that's the issue. All right. Well, thank you so much. That is uh, Richard Oksher, Senior Policy Associate at the Tax Policy Center. New 2020 census data shows neighborhoods are becoming more diverse. Most white people now live in mixed race neighborhoods for the first time in modern history. The percentage of white people who live in predominantly white neighborhoods in 1990 was 78%. Now it's just 44%. With us is Chris Maggio, sociologist at the University of Illinois, Chicago's Department of Criminology, Law and Justice. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, what has changed and why has that changed so much? Well, the sort of overarching trend is one that people may be familiar with, which is simply the large growth of the non-white population in the United States originally uh, through large immigration waves from Latin America and Asia, and then continuing on second and third generation. Some of the other important trends that may be less familiar is the sort of expansion of these groups into parts of the country where there was less traditionally immigration, you know, outside of the major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles or New York. Um, Another is the increasing uh, growth of the population, these populations in the suburbs, which, of course, were predominantly white in in many cases, and and those have diversified as well. Okay, so... As we've established, uh, most white folks are now living in mixed-race neighborhoods. How is it all working out? Well, you know, it probably depends on how you how you want to look at it. Um, you know, certainly my research has focused on the backlash to this in various ways, and one way might be a conservative turn in politics among whites who are living in these places that are rapidly changing, um, whether you look at their attitudes or their voting patterns, and it may be the case among p- certain groups in, in particular. Um, on the other hand, it's not necessarily the case everywhere, and it's not necessarily necessary necessarily to say that um, you know there aren't positive uh, trends happening in these places, and and you know signs that these uh, mixed neighborhoods are are functioning in 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 a positive way. How much of this has to do with the price of homes, Uh, as in, you know, with the economy changing for a lot of us, uh, more white people finding it more affordable to live in a mixed race neighborhood? Well, I was thinking more when you asked that originally along the lines of, you know, why would people be moving into places that are, you know, outside of New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and certainly cost of living is one of those factors, right? Not just cost in terms of the cost of property, but the cost of doing business has led to job growth in many of the places that uh, you're also seeing uh, people moving of of, of all races. Um, and, you know, Additionally, the, the the suburbs may, in many cases, be become more affordable than than the urban centers, and so that can could possibly do the trends as well. What you're probably pointing to initially is uh, gentrification, which is certainly ha- happening in in certain major metropolitan areas um, as well. But it's probably a mix of of these ver- various factors. From a, a I guess a, a socioeconomic but also a cultural point of view, having these more uh, and and more widely dispersed mixed race neighborhoods, what is that bringing to the American culture? Do you think? Well, certainly, there's this um, idea that the sort of what we would think of as mainstream culture is is 
changing in many ways. And one uh, way that this is pointed out is uh, by sociologist Tomas Jimenez, where for the younger generation in particular, diversity is sort of the norm in, in many places, right? He focuses on um, Silicon Valley kind of Bay Area, but if you're growing up with that kind of cultural diversity, it almost doesn't even seem sort of noticeable to you. And so obviously that's going to come in various forms, whether it's music, uh, popular culture, um, food, things like that. Um, but I think the sort of banality of diversity among many of much of the younger generation in in, in particular areas is definitely notable from a, from a cultural standpoint. And uh Looking ahead, do you see this trend continuing or do you think it might snap back? I would su- I would suspect that it's going to continue. Obviously, we've seen, um, you know, with the pandemic, some some sort of different, uh, you know, uh, slowdowns in, in immigration. But the long term trend is certainly towards diversification. The long term trend is certainly growth in non-white populations and you know, I don't really see any particular reason, particularly if we look at trends like the growing rate of uh, intermarriage between white and non-white groups, that, you know, the sort of social signals would point to anything really but a, a continuation of these patterns. I'm curious if there are parts of the United States that tend to be more resistant to mixed race neighborhoods. So, you know, if you were to just sort of look at, you know, places that are still predominantly white, I think a lot of them would be in rural and more small town areas outside of the major metropolitan areas. But that's also not to say that many of these places are not diversifying as well. So, you know, a lot of the growth is still happening, if not in the most major metropolitan areas, but maybe a notch down from those, you know, southern cities like Nashville and and Atlanta, but there may be still some resistance to this in in small town and rural areas. But they they're certainly not completely immune from the from the trend either. All right, thank you so much. That is uh, Chris Maggio, sociologist at the University of Illinois Chicago's Department of Criminology, Law, and Justice. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A new study shows even more promise for the COVID treatment drug Paxlovid. It finds the medication may also cut the risk of people later developing long COVID. Yeah, Paxlovid has already been shown to reduce the risk of going to the hospital for people more likely to get really sick from COVID. With us now to explain this new study is co-author Dr. Zihad Alali, Chief of Research and Development at the VA St. Louis healthcare system. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago when there were all these, uh, you know, articles and news stories questioning the efficacy of Paxlovid because some very famous people uh, up to and including, I guess, the, the president of the United States getting rebound infections after having taken five days of it. But this news seems to paint a much different picture. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. So we know that Paxlovid in the acute phase, you know, reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. And in some people, it has some side effects, you know, metallic taste, some people get rebound. But what we've observed also that people who take Paxlovid, people who qualify for Paxlovid, who have risk factors for progression to severe COVID-19 illness, and then, you know, take Paxlovid, they have a much lower risk of developing long COVID. So does it have side effects? Absolutely, yes. Do some people experience rebound? Yes. 
So, but but I think you know people need to also understand that it also has a really meritorious or really beneficial uh, uh, outcomes, including reducing the risk of hospitalization in the first place and also reducing the risk of long COVID. When uh, I had my case of COVID and I got the Paxlovid and uh, I did get over over the initial infection pretty quickly, but afterwards I did get the rebound for a couple of days. And then I did experience uh, some of the symptoms that some people say is like long COVID. And I had fatigue for a few weeks afterwards, and then I slowly got better. But when we're talking long COVID here and, and what this drug is showing to help with, are the really bad effects of long COVID, how are those different from just somebody like me who, who just felt the fatigue lasting for a month or so? So generally fatigue for a month or so, or, or maybe even brain fog for, a, or for a, you know, a week or two or a few weeks after the initial infection is really not long COVID. Long COVID is really when it persists for a longer period of time. And what we've seen here in this report is that you know, Paxlovid reduces the risk on average about 25 or 26 percent you know for for long covid including you know heart manifestations you know some people have heart problems as a result of long covid some people have um, you know neurocognitive impairment or neurocognitive decline as a result of long covid you know kidney problems and and, and several other manifestations so these are sort of the really you can think of them as the long-term manifestations of having you know covid 19. And, and this drug is not really the panacea of all, does not really eliminate the risk, but, but nevertheless, it does reduce it by 25%. The study, and correct me if I'm wrong, was looking at older people, right? Uh, yet younger people do uh, you know, get long COVID, as you know. Uh, is Paxlovid a benign enough drug that perhaps anybody who gets COVID should probably take it? Well, the short answer is that we don't know yet. So it, you're absolutely 100% correct. So we studied it in the people who would already qualify for Paxlovid. And who qualifies for Paxlovid now under the FDA emergency use authorization? People who are older than 60 years old and people who have at least one medical condition that will put them at high risk of developing severe COVID-19 illness. So that's not everybody. You know, people who are 20 years old who have no medical problems at all, no diabetes, no heart disease, no cancer, no immunosuppression, those people would not qualify for Paxlovid currently. So the, the, the question that you asked is really very, very, very important one and would really need to be ad addressed in future research. We really don't know at this point whether the result that we've seen in an older population at high risk of progression to severe disease will also replicate and be the same in people who are lower risk. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, I, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing you're not 60 years old. Uh, if that's correct, if you got uh, COVID, would you take Paxlovid, if, if, provided that maybe you didn't even have any comorbidities? So I, I am not 60 years old and I do not have comorbidities. So technically, I do not qualify for Paxlovid under the emergency use authorization uh, issued by the FDA and would not take it at this point. We don't have evidence that in people like me, it actually does improve uh, outcomes at this point. Now, will this be, you know, in, in the future tested and maybe, maybe you know, proven beneficial? I think we have to wait. The jury is still out on this question. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, Chief of Research and Development at the VA St. Louis Healthcare System. Remember when uh, hosting the Oscars was a big deal? It was an honor for a celebrity to host Hollywood's biggest show, and the big celebrities were all thrilled to do it. People like Bob Hope, Johnny Carson, Steve Martin, Billy Crystal. Jimmy Kimmel is uh, back as host for next year's Oscars. It's going to be his third time doing it, but... 
is it really worth it with the ratings down and people critically watching every move the host makes, one bad joke, and you're done? With us is media, entertainment, and pop culture expert Jackie Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us. So does the risk outweigh the benefit for someone like Jimmy Kimmel to host the Oscars? That's such a great question. <laughs> such a great question, Robin Charles. I think, uh, first of all, I think the timing of announcing Jimmy Kimmel for the Oscar host is just really uh, perfect because he he just he's been in the news the last couple of days and it's kind of been, you know, political, pol- uh, political cent- centric, um, you know, saying that he lost uh, that he admits he lost some viewers because he did a you know series of Trump jokes and he doesn't regret that. And then, of course, you know, his wife stepped on to do the monologue um, for um, abortion rights. And so there's there's and then Donald Trump took some shots at him at a recent rally at Jimmy Kimmel saying his show was dead and, and Jimmy Kimmel shot back. So the timing of the announcement I find very, very interesting. But what is so interesting about the Oscars, I, I think both of you gentlemen would agree, it's like you can be a comedian, but the uh, the very thing that the Oscars is kind of politicizing, you could actually fall on your sword and be canceled yourself so it's kind of this like literally a double-edged sword to be the host of the oscars at this time so why does somebody like kimmel need to do it i mean he i i I don't know how much he makes but i'm sure he's not wanting for money and he's got a a show that has high visibility on on abc uh so since there's so much downside risk and and what's the upside so more people in i don't know venezuela get to watch him because it's telecast all over the world. That's not going to help him long run, is it? Well, you know, I used to be the showrunner for uh, uh, an industry show called Sunday Morning Shootout that ran on AMC. And Peter Goober um, of Sony and Mandalay uh, was the host, as as well as Peter Bart, who was the editor-in-chief at the time of, of Variety. So it was a very industry insider show. The Hollywood industry really loves their own prestige. And I think hosting the Oscars is still a industry um, prestige, even if it's no longer holds the same um, glitter and gold for the public. I think the public is just kind of bored with the antics of it and not so interested in it. But it's very prestigious. Like, I, I, I'd be happy to win an Academy Award, <laughs> given the opportunity. <laughs> so, you know. Um, so I think that I think that's why uh, people with, you know, with talented people who have, you know, lots of success like Jimmy Kimmel still step up and do it. I seem to recall and you can refresh my memory that uh, there ha- have been instances where someone was was kind of tapped to, or maybe talked about as hosting the Oscars. And that personality said, no, thank you. Don't want to do it because it's too risky. If I mess up, my career is done. Uh, how often do you think that happens behind the scenes that we don't hear about? Oh, I think it happens a lot. I think, you know, the, like that's what cancel culture is a double edged sword for Hollywood itself. And comedians uh, have had a really rough go in the last couple of years. You know, things that would have been considered funny are now considered politi- politically incorrect and very offensive. Uh, and, you know, and, and also for something like the Academy Awards, you know, the jokes are written by entire teams. So, you know, it's not only just the, the face of the host goes down on the sword, you know, the whole entire, you know, writing department goes down. Do you know Carrie Fisher used to be on the Academy Awards writing team? I always really? found that. Yeah. Huh. I always found that to be very, yeah. She's, you know, because she was, was, used to be so, you know, when she was alive, used to be very funny, but she used to be part of that 
part of that writing team. So if you were giving advice to, uh, and maybe you will, to Jimmy Kimmel, uh, does he lean into the political side of him and just say, oh, the heck with it, uh, let's just go for I it? I think so. I think so. I think one of the most memorable host uh, opening speeches was the one from um, Ricky Gervais, um, who did the, was it, was the, did it was the People's Choice? No, it was the Golden Globes. And he did that opening monologue yeah. that was so irreverent because he's British. He could kind of get away with it. You know, he played off of that. Um, and I thought that was, you know, I think it was irreverent. I mean, it was probably very insulting for the industry insiders, but the public loved it. You mean he can get, is, you mean he can get away with it because being British, he sounds better of whatever he says. Is that it? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's it. Reason, yeah. So there's some reason that does go a long way. Yeah. Well, I, I think in his case, though, I mean, cause he, he did get some pushback. Some celebrities were not very happy about the things he said, but Ricky Gervais has built his career on being that person. So, uh, when he gets that response, that's the response he's going for. And I think mm-hmm. it depends on, you know, uh, who the host is. I know that sometimes, uh, people have said that for the Oscars, uh, a comedian is good, but you really want someone with talk show host experience. So Jimmy Kimmel fits both bills. He's exactly. a comedian and he's a host, but that doesn't always work because I recall many years ago, David Letterman, who is, I think, fantastic, did not look so successful hosting the Oscars and got pushed back and made fun of for his uh, Oprah Uma uh, bit that he did. So sometimes it depends on the host and what what kind of comedy they're known for. I, you know, and I think it also has to do with just the flavor and the mood. Like I, I think you can be so funny, and um, and and it still maybe not work at the award ceremony. I just I, I'm thinking, um, who was this? Was it Seth MacFarlane who did who hosted as well? Not too long, like not too long ago, and. Um, he had some provocative, he had, he did that opening monologue, you know, he talked about all the topless, all the topless actresses. They did that opening song. Remember that one? Sort oh, of. You, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And that, that we have brain fog like, from COVID. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that you, was a memorable Academy Award moment, like, uh, about it. And then people were talking about that for, for weeks. And it was, you know, it was definitely risque and it was not typically Academy Awards. But what is, makes the Academy Awards really special is it was supposed to be, you know, it was set up as like a very high class, prestigious, um, top of the line cinema awards. And it just kind of got, it, it's not been able to hold that, that, that panache anymore. So I, I think it's just a hard job. Um, overall, I mean, look how many times yeah. Ellen ended up hosting it. Oh yeah, I mean. and like you said, to your point, she had she's a comedian with with host talk show hosting experiences, and you know it is not easy having been a former talk show pr- producer myself. It is not easy to host a live show, ins, outs, intros, walk ons, walk offs, keep it moving, keep the joke like that. People people don't understand the amount of talent that it takes. And it does require someone of Jimmy Kimmel's talent to be able to you know, 
to, you know, to just, manage that. Sitting here, I just realized, guys, that, that that's two things that, that didn't happen to me today. I didn't win <laughs> the $2 billion jackpot, and I'm not hosting the, the Oscars. It's <laughs> two things. You kind of feel two like things. your life is over now, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I got up yeah. in the morning, I was fine. But, yeah, t- but, but now, now you're not. Two things I'm not doing. All right. So tomorrow on In Depth, Charles Feldman's going to be extremely depressed. Yeah. Because his life is worthless. Now. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that uh, Jackie Jordan, who was a media, entertainment, and pop culture expert. You know, I have offered to host the Oscars before. I know that sometimes they were concerned about how much money they had to spend for an Oscar host. I offered to do it for five grand. I'm guessing it was a quick no, though. <laughs> I never even heard back from them. So I'm incredibly yeah. insulted by that. Uh, and okay. I will I refuse to host the Oscars in the future. We'll You're never re- do it. You're on record saying that now. Exactly. You, you can't so, take that back. Unless they call me, in which case I'll change my mind. Okay. Well, that's uh, in depth for uh, today.